how many pastors, how many pastors does it take to move a TV? This is a, this is a series about art though. And, um, and so I, we thought it was important uh, to show you these pieces and everything. Pastor Chuck, I need you to behave. You're in church. This is Masterpiece. We're going to be looking at pieces of art each week, and we're going to discover how they helped tell the story of God, how they helped the church grow our faith. But there's something else that's going on as well that's more important, that's larger. And I think a lot of times, depending on your translation of the Bible, it can get missed a little bit. But I want to turn to Ephesians 2, verse 10, because uh, this passage is very important to me. I think it's a beautiful one. And uh, it's one that's about you. This is what the Apostle Paul writes. For we are God's masterpiece. Sometimes the word there is workmanship. I don't know what a workmanship is. You are God's masterpiece because if God's working on you and he's a master, you're becoming something beautiful, something amazing. And you were created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Before he made you, God was already preparing the good things that you would be able to do. You are God's masterpiece, and you were created to do good in the world. So we also want to discover God's design that's in ourselves, and also God's design that's in others. Because I believe God is doing something unique and beautiful in you. And as the church, we want to help you discover that. I want to share with you today two pieces of art that both are based on an obscure passage in Revelation chapter 3. The passage says, this is Jesus talking, Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into them. This is the resurrected Jesus. He's now in heaven, but he's still giving promises to the world. The resurrected Jesus is victorious in his power. Victorious. Now, both of these paintings were incredibly famous at their times. As famous as almost any of the paintings in the world. The first one is Christ at Heart's Door. This is by Warner Salmon. You've probably seen this one in your grandparents' home, or if you were a kid and you were raised in a church, maybe you saw it in a Sunday school classroom or something like that. Woo! You'll notice this barely concealed heart, the luminescence that comes out of Christ. And even though the door is closed, it's not all hopeless, for there's an opening of grill work that's in the door. It reveals the darkness that's behind that door, but it also, if you're the one answering the door, it allows you to see who's knocking. And when you see him, you see that he is good and he's kind. And get this, more than 500 million copies of this painting have been sold. He created what is probably the most widely recognized portrait of Christ in the world. But here's the funny thing. If we're being honest, it's kind of kitsch art, isn't it? It's a little kitschy. Like Jesus is soft and European. And as you'll see when we turn to Revelation chapter 3, Jesus in Revelation is anything but soft. Contrast this painting 
with the next. This one's called The Light of the World. It's by William Holman Hunt. It's more iconography than kitsch art. This painting hangs at Oxford University. And there's a later, larger version that he painted hanging in St. Paul's Cathedral in London. Jesus, the light of the world, is standing at a door which is overgrown with ivy and weeds. The door, perhaps, has never been opened. And since there's no handle on the outside, and this is on purpose, since there's no handle on the outside, it can only be opened from the inside. This Jesus is more imposing. He comes in power. Light radiates from his lantern, but it also radiates from his head, kind of like a crown. But he wears two different crowns on his head, if you look really, really closely. A crown of glory, which is a royal crown, but he's still wearing the crown of thorns, lest we forget what he did for us. Except the crown of thorns in this painting, if you look real closely, it's now in bloom. It's alive again. He's also wearing a royal robe, but it's clasped together with the breastplate of the high priest of Judaism. Jesus is both priest and king. But there's something subtle I want you to notice. Notice the direction of his feet. They're starting to turn away from the door. He's been knocking, but nobody's answering. There's an urgency in this painting that is true in Revelation chapter 3. Jesus stands at the door and knocks. You better answer when he knocks. You better answer. Hunt preferred to paint most of this work during the late night hours because he wanted to mimic the effect of lighting lit by a lamp. The overgrown weeds that are Jesus is having to walk through to get to you, they symbolize the temptations and the distractions of life that keep us locked away, that keep us apart from God. When he was painting this work, Hunt underwent a spiritual awakening. He became an enthusiastic student of the Bible, and he began traveling to the Holy Land, spending six and a half years of his life in the land where Jesus walked. This is the most popular picture of Jesus from the mid-1800s to the early 1900s. It was so popular that Oxford began to charge to see it with lines over an hour. People were said to pass out when they looked upon it. While it was on world tour, 80% of Australia viewed this painting. This is not kitsch art. It understands the gravitas of Revelation 3, and it portrays the power and the majesty of the risen Christ. I like it better than the other one, but that doesn't mean you have to. That's the beauty of art. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Some people like kitsch art. Others like religious icons. Some people like Coltrane. Some people like Snoop Dogg. Apparently, some people like DaBaby. Because DaBaby has 21 million followers, and that's more than I got. So whichever of these famous portrayals or other 
of Jesus knocking, whichever one is a masterpiece to you, whichever one speaks to you, it's fine. Let's just jump into scripture and use this as inspiration as we get into God's word. Now, Revelation 2 and 3, they are known as the letters to the seven churches. Jesus in Revelation invited John to record these words to these churches, and he wanted them to identify their strengths and their weaknesses. In fact, these ancient churches of the first century, they contended with many of the same challenges that you and I go through today in the church. The last of these letters was the letter to the church at Laodicea, and that's the one I want to focus on today. Chapter 3, to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, these are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Now I'll guess you've heard this passage taught one way for your whole life. And that's only if you were raised in the church. It's a little bit of an obscure passage. And only really if you were probably raised in a church that taught a lot of Bible. But if you think you know what this passage means or what you've heard it mean from others, I'm going to ask you to suspend your opinion this morning and consider some things about the text itself. See, the key to understanding the scripture are the temperature metaphors. In our culture, the idiom is clear. Hot is good. Cold is bad. If you say someone is hot, that's a good thing. If you say she's cold, that's not so nice. Or a basketball player, he's hot from the outside, he can't miss. He's cold from the line, he can't buy a bucket. This is an American idiom, and what happens so often is we take our American idiom and we place it over a text, even an ancient text like the Bible. There's a Christian conference called Acquire the Fire. It's about getting your faith going. It's about having passion for mission. If I were to start a competing conference called Catch the Cold, probably low registration, right? So when Jesus says this, we think he means, I wish you were on fire for me. Give me all you got. But if you're not, then I'd rather you be cold, vehemently against me. Be hot or cold, don't be lukewarm. I'd rather you reject me than go through the motions. We treat the passage like a light switch. You're on or you're off. You're for me or you're against me. There is no Switzerland in this equation, which leaves you hanging. I know I did when I was first reading this. Because sometimes you don't always feel on fire. Who stepped on the baby? Goodness, man. You don't always feel on fire, do you? Your faith doesn't always feel hot. And logically, why would Jesus rather have people reject him and therefore be hellbound? But you go to a conference or a camp or a mission trip, and eventually you have to come home. You're on fire when you're there, but when you come home, you realize again, I'm still a sinner. I still have doubt. 
doubt is a part of faith. Is Jesus saying, if I doubt a little bit, if I feel in the middle, he'd rather me just reject him? Really? But this is what most of us were taught. It's possible that our American idiom for hot is good and cold is bad should not be applied here. It's possible that in the first century, hot and cold don't mean the same as they do today. Now, I'm going to tell you a little bit of info that I didn't get when I was growing up because preachers always brought this up as the guilt trip sermon. You got to be more on hot, more on fire. You're not on fire enough. And it make me feel bad. The important information is actually in the geology and the geography of Laodicea. To the north of Laodicea is a city about six miles away called Heropolis. Heropolis has one defining feature, a very rare and valuable feature. It had a hot springs. In a day and age where hot and cold water didn't just come from the faucet, the only way to get hot water was to take water and boil it yourself. But if you had a natural hot springs, which has a natural therapeutic quality, hot springs could make a town quite wealthy. That's Heropolis. Now, the neighboring city to the southeast was Colossae. And you know, Paul wrote to them as well. The Colossians had another interesting feature. Colossae had a cold spring. In central Texas, there's a popular river called the Rio Frio. It can be 105 degrees outside, but the Rio Frio is always 68 degrees. Having a cold spring is very rare, but it's also a valuable commodity. Imagine cold water on a hot day in a world without ice machines or refrigerators. Laodicea didn't have this kind of spring. In fact, they didn't have a spring at all. They had to get their water from up north in Heropolis because it was at a higher elevation and they would use huge limestone aqueducts to channel the water six miles away to them. The problem is you would take these hot springs water and on a six mile journey, the water would start to cool. It would gather limestone deposits in it. By the time you got it, it was lukewarm and tepid. It was contaminated by the limestone. You would have to repurify it in order to drink it. When it arrived in Laodicea, it was essentially useless. Actually, they had one use for it before boiling it. There's reports of the doctors using it to induce vomiting if somebody was poisoned. That was first century medicine. Just drink Laodicea's lukewarm water and you'll throw up. So when Jesus says, if you're lukewarm, I'll spit you out of my mouth, suddenly the metaphor is no longer about one good thing, hot water, and one bad thing, cold water. It's about two good things that are good in different ways. The hot springs and the cold springs. Hot is good. Cold is good. But this lukewarm water is poisonous. So what Jesus is saying in the passage is, be something good, don't be something useless. This is a metaphor about our impact, not our feelings. It's about what you do in the world, not where your faith is right now. 
This is not Jesus trying to make you feel guilty because you don't feel something, because you're not on fire. Your faith is not just determined by your feelings. You should know that you can't change your feelings sometimes, even if you tried. But what you can change sometimes is your behavior, which you do. It's an important distinction. That's why Jesus says in the passage, I know your deeds, that you're neither hot nor cold, but instead you're useless. This is Jesus' invitation. Be useful. Come follow me. Do what I do. Theology isn't something you study. It's something you do. Like how many sermons have you heard in your life on love your neighbor as yourself, love your neighbor as yourself? Maybe we preachers should just say, Hey, everybody, thanks for coming. Go ahead and get back in your car. We're going to drive to the nursing home. And we're going to go love somebody today. Because that's actually what the passage is about. Love isn't a subject. Love is something you do for a person. Earlier in Revelation 2, Jesus addressed another of the seven churches. This one's called Smyrna. Smyrna is just fun to say. Smyrna and Laodicea are like polar opposites. In Smyrna, Jesus gives no words of challenge, only words of encouragement. In Laodicea, he has no encouraging words, just harsh words. Let's look at that section. So in Smyrna, he says, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. To Laodicea, he says, you say, I'm rich. I've acquired wealth and I don't need anything. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. These two things are inverted and matched. Jesus chooses his words very carefully. Wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. See, Laodicea was one of the richest cities in the world. In fact, they were so rich, they had an earthquake and it devastated the city. But they had a tremendous stores of gold. And when the Roman Empire came and offered to help them rebuild their city, they said, nah, we don't even need your help. They re rebuilt their city on their own. They built it bigger and better than before. They were very rich. They were also a medical center. They were famous because they had an eye salve, a cream that you could put on your eyes. It would help with certain vision ailments. And finally, they were an exporter of very rare and expensive types of clothing. That's why Jesus says rich in eyes and clothing, corresponding with poor, blind, and naked. It's a direct assault on the things that were number one in their culture, on how they found their value. If the message to Smyrna is, I know you feel like a very thin candle, Without much wax, you feel weak, you feel insignificant. But can you not see how rich you are in your faith? The good you do in the world. Your wick is lit. God is at work. Well, then the corresponding message of Laodicea is, I know you've got a lot of wax and it looks really pretty, but I'm here to tell you, there's no fire. Your wick isn't lit. You're useless, bald, of wax. He continues in verse 18. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes 
so you can see. They need gold that's refined. Laodicea is playing with fool's gold. It looks like gold, feels like gold, but it ain't gold. It tricks you. And we spend all our lives panning for gold. We feel empty. We want joy and happiness. So we pan for gold. We seek it out. Maybe if I was just married, there'd be gold. Maybe if I have kids, there's the gold. Maybe if I can get my kids out of the house, I'll find the gold. Maybe if I get a promotion. Maybe if I get my driver's license, I'll have the gold. Maybe if I ever retire. We're sifting and sifting with our gold pan. But we never get the refined stuff, the real gold, the spiritual gold that Jesus is talking about. Verses 19 to 20, John continues. Those whom I love and I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Most of us don't like to be rebuked and disciplined when it's happening. However, most of us really appreciate the coaches in life who rebuked us and disciplined us after the fact. We appreciate them because they made us better. They did it because they cared about you. They believed in you. They saw potential in you and they didn't want you to waste your life. So although they rebuked you and disciplined you sometimes, it actually helped you become stronger. A great coach doesn't waste their time on somebody with no potential. If you have ever felt like God was being hard on you, remember, it's because he believes in you and he loves you and he sees potential in you. Pick the thing you want most in your life. Could be a better body, more money. Could be a marriage. Could be kids. Could be different kids. And you settle on that one thing. Go ask someone who already has it and ask them, did it solve your problem? Ask them, did your great marriage get rid of all your loneliness? Did your wealth get rid of all your fear? Ask somebody who has kids of any age, did having kids, did that make your worries go away? Every one of those things cannot solve our problems. In fact, sometimes they multiply the worries. They're still good things but they multiply the worries because now we have something we love that we worry about. But they are not for a moment the enduring gold that Jesus is talking about. Only the one who opens the door can see the one who is that. Only the firstborn over all creation. Only the God who would stay in our place to die for sin so that we wouldn't have to do it. Jesus, and he's knocking at your door. See, as harsh as the words to Laodicea are, at the end of the letter, Jesus is there, and he's trying to find them. This is gold that's panning for you. This is gold 
that's trying to find you, that's knocking on your door. Friends, that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you want the gold, there's only one place where it comes. It's from Jesus the Messiah. You can get all this from a masterpiece that was painted 170 years ago. But you can get the meaning all the more when you realize that the real masterpiece that God's working on, it's you. It's you. And I know, I know your canvas isn't finished yet. I know you don't feel like a beautiful piece of art right now. But there are some flaws that need to be redone and some edges that need to be chiseled. But the artist doesn't see an imperfect block of marble. A master artist sees Michelangelo's David trying to get out. And that's what God sees when he sees you. For you are God's masterpiece, Ephesians 2 says, created in Christ Jesus to do good in the world. And if you're not seeing that yet, come back next week and the week after that. And we're going to keep telling you, and we're going to keep showing you the masterpiece that you can be. Because that's God's wish, God's dream for you. Amen. Invite Pastor Chuck to come up, pray for us.